Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to John, the CTO at Quake Technologies, and we discuss the ways they are using augmented reality to save lives every day, how having clear responsibilities makes it easier to learn from your mistakes, and the lessons he's learned jumping from academia to startup founder. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, it's so cool. I, I was watching you on a documentary last night, and then now I see you here. Yeah, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for watching. That was a fun experience. It was great. It was like just showing us the future in this amazing documentary, all these advanced technologies. It was sad. It was happy. It was amazing. Yeah, no, they, thanks for having me on. Uh, when uh, you all reached out to me, I... I looked up your podcast and heard about it before but hadn't listened to it and it was really it's a great forum you've created here uh, i appreciate it. it's kind of nice to have a cto space <laughs> yeah right how how did you get how did that documentary come up like how did that happen for you yeah uh, that came up as we were um trying to figure out ways to make our business work early on um working in the public space there's pretty big gap you got across before private investments really interested. So for we were really pursuing corporate partnerships for a while, one of which was with uh, Verizon. And we have the, the privilege of working with them at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona a couple of years back. And they had a, a film crew there that was documenting the events for Verizon under all of their 5G uh, uh, initiatives. And uh, we had our in-mass system there and we were running over cellular, some video streaming, you know, some of our early uh, deployment of our features. And the film crew really liked what we were doing and they pitched to Verizon, hey, you know, you guys actually collected a really interesting group of people, not just from the technology, but their spaces they're operating within. They asked, Green, or asked uh, Verizon if they'd be willing to... Uh, fund and green light this documentary they did and that kind of started it off and it was a great crew out of montreal that just uh you know showed up and just really kept bugging us hey can we show up with this test you're doing hey can we show up and watch you solder things hey can we you know and, and uh and that's kind of how it grew yeah it was so cool in documentary getting to see you go through what do, what do they call them they're they're essential well first of all i guess i'm too excited we'll back up what do you guys do <laughs> yeah yeah thanks yeah, so uh, at Quake Technologies, we leverage what all the great things that are happening in modern camera and sensor and specifically augmented reality technology to create tools that allow workers, first responders specifically, we're working with firefighters a lot right now, to do their job better under stress, right? That's, that's kind of the, the key components is people who are working in teams who are working in time-critical, stressful environments, uh, who can benefit from a visual interface to help them do their work more easily. Yeah, it looks like Iron Man technology for firefighters is what I took from it. That's, that is part of the reason we managed to get Robert Downey Jr. to <laughs> do, do some work on our, you know, that showcased our technology. And uh, that was fun, yeah. Yeah, you have him on the homepage. How did you get that to happen? Uh, that's my uh, CEO, Sam Kosman. He's he quite masterful at those kind of, uh, marketing events. I, you know, I, with my team just like make the, t the technology work when it has to. 
and my understanding is that there's you know we've we've done really good at leveraging cool things that are happening right now and we've been very lucky i mean it was like Verizon's really pushing on 5G and really wanted some cool uh, user stories, you know, and so that's how that happened. YouTube Red was launching up and this series with it featured Robert Downey Jr. kind of as the narrator uh, was happening right when we were at a really exciting moment. So we reached out, they liked what we're doing. Um, and in general, uh, you know, people love what we're, we're doing, which really motivates us to, to do it. How can you not? You're building technology that makes it easier for the emergency people to save our lives better. Yeah, that's that's the general plan. You'd, you'd think it would be a slam dunk from a business perspective once you uh, get that main thesis. We, we don't have any trouble in the what problem is your product solving department at all. Have you gotten to work with any of the... Well, I'll back up. So my brother... Uh, he's a physician, and one of his best friends is actually the uh, one of the chiefs. I, I believe I don't know. They have titles. I may be completely screwing it up. He's he's a higher up at Lee County, which happens to be the largest fire department in the United States. And oh, really? I was curious if you worked with them at all, or if you want. No, to but hey, you. I'd love to. Uh, yeah. to make that connection. I mean, because right now. We're at a really exciting but also challenging part of our business because there's obviously a hardware component to what we do. And I'm sure you know from all of your interviews with you know CTOs and your work in technology, hardware is a different game altogether than versus when you have a pure software play that works on some existing hardware. And we're at the point right now where that device that you see in the documentary, that helmet-mounted device, we've built like 40 of those prototypes, right? Those are not quite certified yet, right? We still got to go through design for manufacturing. There's all these bars you have to hit before you can really sell it a wide uh, uh, base. Um, but we have these advanced prototypes that are all working on cellular network, live video streaming, and all of our accountability system, visual communications. And we really need to be doing the, the roadshow on this right now. But you might have heard there was this plague that uh, yeah. hit. Just wear the mask at your pitches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's like, yeah, it's been a, it's been a little bit a little bit tricky, right? We ha we were fortunate enough to do a really great pilot with the Boston Fire Department, right? Another really historically significant and, and large fire department. In that window, kind of the end of summer and going into fall, when cases were really down, but then everything shut down for a while. Things are starting to open up again. We've been able to do some demos in California, but we you know we're at roadshow stage, right? The fire and emergency response businesses are very much understandably show me cultures, you know, and we have a lot to, to show now. And, and we're just kind of held up a little bit because of COVID, obviously. Yeah, I'll definitely, after the show, we'll make some notes and we'll enter. His name's Darren. He's a really great guy and they're super modern. And when I watched the documentary and I heard one of the firefighters say that they're receptive to technology, they are. Firefighters are surprisingly receptive to new technologies. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of interesting things happening. You know, they always say, you know, uh, uh, be, be glad for the times you live in because there's a couple different factors going on right now. One major one is there's kind of a generational shift in the fire service right now no knock on the the older guys and gals but you know the reality is as we get older a lot of times our 
embrace of new interfaces and new technology kind of diminishes and the easiest way to get new adopters is to lower their age, right? And it's just turned out that there's a big kind of generational turnover in the fire service going on. So there's a whole new cadre of people who are just like tech, tech, tech. Um, but then also the people who are older and tend to be the higher up members, maybe your relative is a battalion chief, if not the chief of the department itself. You know, fire service members are having to service more people with largely the same amount of staff, right? You know, when you look at population growth versus number of firefighters, it's pretty flat on the firefighters, the population growth is going up. So they're really interesting and interested in using technology to increase efficiency. Yeah. So how did you even get started with this company? How did you even get into this? Yeah, yeah, no, that's kind of a funny story. So this is my first like uh, entrepreneurial venture in the business sector. I mean, I've been a behavioral neuroscientist and computer vision expert for most of my life. You know, I started doing uh, neurophysiology in undergrad, then in my, uh, but I always had a very strong background in mathematics and, and computer programming. And then I, in graduate school, I worked in a brain machine interface laboratory uh, at the uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Jose Carmena there. And that's where I started really getting into what I kind of call a cybernetics motif, you know, where it's like you have a piece of technology that is meant to integrate with the brain and behavior and that the joint system of the technology and the user, you know, do things they couldn't do before. In the case of brain machine interfaces, it was about somebody's lost a limb, like that Luke Skywalker moment where he gets like the new hand, you know, it was kind of motivated by stuff like that, working on sensory feedback. Um, but really, the reason I kind of moved or the reason I moved into more technology was, quite frankly, um, the experiments we were doing where you're doing implants in the brain, um, they're just, in my opinion, no knock to Neuralink and what Elon Musk is doing. I did that. I did those surgeries and that kind of technology for like 10 years, and it shows great promise. But, you know, the analogy is like, you stick a fork in a bowl of jello where the jello is the brain and the fork is those wires you put in and then you run around a bunch and your experiment and data qualities you know inversely proportional to how cloudy that fork is in the jello you know there's a material interface problem there um <clears throat> that led me to believe hey i'm not a material scientist so maybe this isn't the best thing for me but meanwhile i had been building a bunch of camera-based systems for doing things like motion tracking 3d reconstruction behavior analysis and with ar coming in i was like whoa how about instead of putting things in the brain i put them in through the your your eyes are just an extension of your brain you know i'm going to work in that space so the combination of kind of a, a choice in a new direction for how i was kind of going in this cybernetics direction and then also just wanting to work on uh stuff immediately impactful right you know i love doing research i love being a scientist but the horizon of like you know, oh, where is this really kind of going is, is very far. And I believe in it in the medium term, but, you know, my own ambition, I, I wanted to do something that I could be like, all right, this is something that works right now. So I started exploring stuff uh, outside of academia. I um, never thought I'd end up in firefighting. I did some pro bono work for the Smithsonian and then a little bit for NASA through a consulting thing. And then just computer vision stuff, you know, taking shots of asteroids and 3D fusing them or, you know, did a little brain machine interface thing with a friend at the Smithsonian. And through that, I got in contact with my CEO or who became my CEO, Sam Kosman. He reached out to me and he's like, hey, 
I heard about you through some contacts at NASA. I have this idea. Can I talk to you about it? And he mentioned he did be doing some volcano explorations, whatever, you know, like, and he wanted hands-free thermal. He looked for to the fire service for it. They didn't even really have it. And, and that kind of got him thinking a lot about the, there's a niche here that needs to be filled. Um, he linked up with, one of our co-founders, Omer uh, Haji Omergulu, who had done this uh, advanced industrial design concept. And Sam was like, I want four of these. And Omer's like, it's just a design concept. It doesn't, you know, I don't know how to make it work. And so they started looking for people who could make this kind of thing work. And, and, and they found me. Oh, that is so cool. So he was jumping into volcanoes and he said, it takes a whole hand to hold this thermal imager and I need to jump into volcanoes and I need better access to volcano jumping into. And so I need hands free. And then that's how this thing got started. Yeah. Initially. Right. Yeah. I love it. Have you been into an active volcano? No. <laughs> Any plans? <laughs> no. no. I mean, I've, you know, working with the fire service, it's, you get all these really interesting opportunities to, because they, they have these, I didn't even know this. They have these incredible training facilities, right? Some of them, they range from, like co one concrete house to some of them like in, i've seen in savannah georgia they are outside savannah they have all these like containers from like shipping containers that they've made into like a multi-story maze in boston they have this huge like four-story structure and you know we go out there and you know they love they're like oh you want to throw on the gear and go in there with the fire and everything and i've done it a few times and it's it sucks it's 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 cool it, you get a real appreciation for the work these men and women do everything from like what it really is to be an absolute pitch darkness and then absolute pitch darkness when there's smoke in the air and you're wearing this like big mask where you learn that you can't even hear that well if they're burning stuff you learn that fires are loud you know uh it's it's cool but i you know at a certain point I, you know, I do, I've done it a few times, but then I'm like, all right, I'm, I, I'm just going to run the tech. You know, I, I'm not here to get all sweaty, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. If Elon Musk called you up and he said, hey, how you doing, bud? Uh, I want you to be a beta tester. And he wants to, he, he's already done with the pigs, right? The pigs are looking good, right? <laughs> and they've already been converted to ham. And yeah. he's like, I want you to be one of the first human beta testers. Would, what would you tell Elon? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, it's still, <laughs> it, it's still, well, first of all, it's still an invasive surgery, right? You know, and I mean, I've done a lot of like drilling and skulls before and, you know, it's, it's a capsule. It's not, you don't want to punch a hole in there unless you really want to, you need to. And that being said, I mean, his central thesis though, about emerging of uh, human and, and machine intelligence and through a, a biocompatible interface. I'm 100% on board with that. And the fact that he's using his extensive capital to advance those ideas and that research, uh, it's the it's the right way to go, right? Um, I just, it's just, for me, I think augmented reality technology is is in the immediate term, both in terms of usability and learnings from actually figuring out how to create a compelling technological biological user experience you know i think there's still a lot of value there of course i mean you're able to save lives today i even notice when you talk you constantly uh, i notice in the documentary and then in your bio and reading and 
just talking to you today, you're always discussing how you bring everything together. And as a founder, I'm sitting here saying like, oh, he probably had a lot of pushback from people thinking that they're manufacturing like all their own stuff from scratch and not investing because, you know, I've raised capital before. And so I, when I hear people's like refined pitch that got their business farther, it's usually a collection of all the objections. <laughs> For reals. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, you got to figure out how to thread the needle, right? I mean, like I know for us, you know, the thing that has been very, very challenging, but also really focusing is how do we close that gap between like our customer, right? The firefighter and the people who actually will buy the technology for them, right? And this is something I've learned a lot about along the way, both in terms of public service agencies and how they purchase things and also how the investment community views this type of market, you know, and it's not good in general. It's all bad because like you don't have a consumer. The firefighters can't buy the technology, right? They can be a little bit of a prosumer in the sense that if the part of the reason we're going out and doing all these demos is because if we go out there and we show this device and we've been in so far, the, the feedback has been really great and the firefighters go, we want this. We know that that goes up the chain of command and we start getting buzz from the people that then are like, okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about how we do that. Right. But still, even there, right. It's still more like an enterprise purchase, right. Where the agencies have to make the decision there. And then you run into, they can have restrictions upon how many they can buy before it has to go through the municipal government or through fire protection district. It has to go through the board of directors. Uh, if it gets the purchase of a certain size, it has to be either put up for a competitive bid or if you're a sole provider, you got to go through a whole, it's like, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And meanwhile, the investors are like, when you're going to drive dollar one, I don't really want to invest in anything that's still zero revenue. Right. But the fact is, you know, I think we have, after a couple of years, figuring out how to crack the nut, but this is a business where you can die while you've built all of this technology and showing, creating all this value, but you're not driving revenue yet. So private investments, like, you know. I mean, even when you are driving revenue, it's still insanely difficult because it's so funny. I've pitched, pre-revenue and got money and then pitched post-revenue and pre-revenue everyone's you know excited about the potential but they will think that it might not happen right and then you start generating revenue like we grew 300 last year right and i was out there raising capital and then it's just the same doubt it's just i don't know if you're going to continue to do that and yeah <laughs> that's good to know it, it will continue to happen so the the name of the game is just volume you just have to have a ton of at-bats. If you get enough at-bats, you right, meet the right people, then it'll click and everything's good to go, you know? That's the hope. I mean, so far, you know, I think we have found a good target profile. We've been very fortunate that we got a contract to the Department of Homeland Security, and they've been a pretty good partner to us at this point. And, and you know, we've been working with Verizon, who's been good to us. And so that's kind of, we've done a pretty good job of getting some partners that aren't really taking any equity from us as we, you know, build out our technology and get closer to market. And it allowed us to get smarter too, learning things like, you know, maybe your family members, you know, we've learned that big departments a lot of times have 
their chiefs will have discretionary budget where they can make a purchase order even on products that aren't certified yet, right? Because there's in the in the you know in the public sector in the emergency response market, there's this really interesting dance around like how regulations and stuff work. Because like at first blush, it's like we all agree we don't want to put anything on anybody that's not safe, right? So there are standards for that ranging from intrinsic safety, electronics can't blow up in gas-filled environments, you know, that sort of thing, all the way to National Fire Protection Association regulations around like the heat and water tolerance. And those are just like, you know, you could land a spacecraft on Mars and this technology, I mean, on Venus, I'm sorry, and the technology will survive. Um, but in between, you know, that, that can make things very expensive, very challenging to get there. But then, you know, you look at the firefighters and they're bringing their smartphones into fires and they're bringing their, like, whatever mounted flashlights, you know. So they, you know, they make choices about when they're willing to, if the value of the technology is high enough, they're willing to compromise the regulations to a point, right, you know, to a point to, to, to drive adoption and to, to bring this value in. And so... You know, we're kind of looking at these technology forward uh, agencies to try to get revenue as quickly as possible and also to get that network effect you're talking about. Because in the fire service, getting those at-bats is like, oh, did you hear about this in this department? It's really a, a, a social network, a lot of these first responders. Oh, yeah. And I've often found that, you know, it's almost a better use of time just to go get customers <laughs> than raising capital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we're learning. I mean, you know, my my job mainly is is the technology side of it, but I've had to, to your point about uh, people's presentation of their business being kind of like responses to a bunch of objections. You know, that was something I had to learn coming out of, you know, the ivory tower and academia. You know, you got to get smart on that stuff really fast. Oh, yeah. But you'll adapt. I mean, you were called to do this, right? This is a passion like inside of you. You didn't go off into this dark abyss for, <laughs> you know, and leave the comfort of, of the scientific research job because, you know, you, you want to, you're an adventurer, right? You, you're on this yeah. journey and you're doing something super useful. One of the, my background software engineering, um, and one of the things I was actually pretty curious about because there was a lot of talk about the 5G, is this technology like only possible because of 5G or could it be run without 5g yeah the roadmap gets really exciting with 5g but our system we've always developed along a two-prong approach we have to deliver an incredible amount of uh, value to the first responder in the absence of any connectivity right because while 5g is really quite impressive in terms of the bandwidth, the latency, and even things like uh, what are called edge computing, which is basically integrating server architecture within some of the cell tower hubs so you don't have to do all this network topology hops. Very exciting stuff. That'll make it to where our features like video streaming, visual communications, real-time playback of everything that's happening, that can scale really gracefully and maintain really low latency. But all of our core navigation features features that range everything from image real-time image processing. So taking that thermal camera imagery, which is not really like a grayscale image, and doing a lot of enhancements that are optimized based upon my background and computer vision for how human vision works. Like all of that, all of our uh, navigation, like we do real-time tracking and mapping on the system. To If they get lost, they can actually turn the system into what we call a breadcrumbs mode, and they'll see the path they came in on, right? 
things like compass orientation, kind of they can set essentially a true north that tracks throughout. All that is happening on the device because we're actually using embedded GPUs. We're using NVIDIA's Tegra class chips. So that's because of computer vision, I, I, I'm very specialized or, or, or rather expert at parallel programming on GPUs. And so we use those little machines to do a ton of work for low power. And they're happening. It's happening right on the device. Right on the device. Right there. That is so. That's saving. That's saving the firefighters' life right there. The breadcrumbs thing. You you have to like go watch the documentary because you get to see the little arrows on the floor, the augmented reality, the breadcrumbs. Uh, it, it's just such a fascinating thing. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that's that part is the thing. Like I, you know, I'm getting gray hairs working on that and making it work in all the scenarios it needs to work. Right? Because a lot of the the simultaneous localization and mapping literature, you know, there's a lot of specs that the fire service needs. They can't wait for a map to initialize. They can't make special motions, all these things that had to be vastly improved. I've been working a lot on under our DHS contract. And then also things like, you know, thermal cameras don't have textures. It's, it's an interesting problem, but we're making a lot of progress. Um, and also don't forget, you know, a lot of it is, like I remind the firefighters because I tell them about our tracking and mapping and they're just like, oh yeah, that'd be great. It gets disorienting in a fire environment. You can turn it on and go. And I'm like, but remember, you now also can see, right? Because you have a hands-free yeah. thermal device. So you're not going to get lost as much because you can see, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, once they put it on and get to go through their training environments, do, does it click in their eyes? Like, after some you've been there when a firefighter has put it on for the first time and gone through a training simulation what what is it like when they come out yeah yeah so the general feedback we get because there's like a couple buttons and you know the, the mounted on so there's a little bit of like like okay how does this work you know like they're looking at the optic here and it's not exactly where their eye is so there's a there's a little moment where they're just like okay, what's going on here? But then when they go into, say, a training facility building like we had at Boston, where the lights are out and they have no choice but to like figure it out, you know, then they're like, oh, okay, now I get it, right? It's so it's, it's interesting because when they're sitting outside with the device out, they're like, okay, and it's like they're outside in the daytime and, the, and it's not really the use case, right? They're sitting out there and they're like, okay, I can see the screen. Okay, that's cool, that's cool. All right, but then you put them in there and they're like, oh, you know, I can move around, I can walk, I can do all these things now, right? And then they come out and they're like, I get it. That is really exciting, right? Have you recorded any of them, like experiencing it for the first time to use this promotional material? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, my uh, the rest of my business team has that and I've been releasing parts of it. Like on our uh, on our website, some of that footage you get when you come in, I mean, that was actually taken when we were at Boston, right? Poor, we hired a camp videographer and the poor guy was like on a mask and like taking video <laughs> in there. And then he's like, I can't, he's like, he's like, I missed a lot of the good moments because I couldn't see with my visible light camera. And we're like, well, yeah, but then we have all the, because all the devices are, kind of have a black box feature so they're natively storing the video and when available they're also streaming so yeah we have a lot of stuff but there's there's tricky parts to it like this the the optic is a micro display projector through a beam splitter so it's actually kind of tricky to film it because it creates a virtual image of the distance whatever and then otherwise it is thermal like one of the coolest use cases is in the dark so we're having to you know collect the data but but it's cool you know we've done scenarios where we will um 
put our device, one of our devices on a dummy and one of the settings we have is a mayday state. So if the firefighter ever gets in distress or if their incident commander who's watching their video stream via the tablet, if they see like, oh, Joel's in trouble, they can set you into a mayday state. Now there's a laser pointer on the device and lights that start flashing. And there's a there's a, a, a Wi-Fi transceiver on there that will turn it into an access point and start broadcasting a, a wireless signal, which then devices nearby will actually orient their compass towards that, right? It'll basically use the motion of the user and the detection of the Wi-Fi signal to try to triangulate on the, the person in mayday. And they love that. That was That was a lot of fun. We show that is so neat. I've got somebody you need to talk to. Uh, he's pretty cool. His name is Dave. He is like, I don't know, his official title, I think, is Director of Innovation, but he's at QTS Data Centers. And they, I don't think a lot of people know the name brand QTS Data Centers, but they're like, you know, the big five, like the Facebooks and the Amazons and all the names I shouldn't be using. Uh, Dave's going to be like, we don't use those names. I'm like, I know, I know. But anyways, big, very big companies use the QTS data centers. They are the largest data center in North America by square footage, right? And when we were preparing for the interview, we were like wondering, because we you know just talked to him, we were wondering like, okay, you've already told me that a lot of the stuff gets processed on the chip. But for yeah. the stuff that doesn't, when you partner with like a, QTS data centers or like an Amazon or something like that. When you partner with a data center, do you have some sort of special contract so they know that the, the type of data you're processing is like life-saving to get some sort of priority? Or, or how do you how do you ensure that your partners that are that are helping transmit your data are great? Yeah, I mean that works at, at multiple levels, actually. That's a that's a good uh and question because we've been dealing with that a lot. So there's a pretty heated competition going on right now between AT&T Verizon with regards to cellular communications in the public emergency responder space. So AT&T has taken one route called FirstNet. They're actually building dedicated cellular tower architecture that is just for first responders. Verizon has gone another way of doing what's called network preemption, where basically if you have a cellular device that is registered as a, you know, emergency response device, when your traffic hits the tower, it, everything else gets shut out and gets prioritized. And so we're working with Verizon on that because we're betting on, you know, their network's just so big that going the software route of network preemption will get bigger scale across the country. Um, and then we're also working with uh, AWS is our partner who we have our cloud native services working. And part of the reason we're working with them, because it used to be just Microsoft Azure that had what's called CGIS, which is the criminal, uh, criminal justice investigative standard. I believe that's the acronym. It's basically security protocols that they require. And the way a lot of times the government works is like one major department, like the, you know, FBI says we use this standard and the police use it and the firefighters use it. And so that made Amazon available and they have a really good, uh, we're part of a program called the AWS GovTech Start. So they're really trying to provide a lot of uh, services and value to uh, government uh, public sector startups like ourselves. So yeah, there's actually, you know, as hard as it, it it is right now in our company with hardware and all the things we're doing, we have a lot of great partners and we're at a really interesting moment right now where some big players are putting some, some leaning their shoulder into some of this stuff. What were you like in high school? Were you interested in neuroscience in high school? 
I was I was just an impossible like nerd in high school. <laughs> no, I mean, I uh, yeah, I I had a good time, but I was like I was actually really into classical guitar and mathematics. That was kind of my thing. I, I came up playing classical and flamenco guitar from when I was like. 10 12 years old and then i uh, was really into that and i was really into math i had some really good math teachers but then i was like because i was in the guitar i was kind of into heavy metal for a while so i had like the stupid long hair and the like grotesque embarrassing t-shirts like for metallica and stuff you know yeah but then i just got i don't know somewhere around my like sophomore year of, of high school i got really I got introduced to the idea largely through mathematics and literature that there have always been these like kind of amazing people who have been inventing and doing things you know and uh and i uh it made me interested in history you know learning about the mathematics everything from going all the way back to euclid through more modern people like you know descartes and euler and you know all the way up to gauss and, and modern times and uh anyway i just got i became a horrible pretentious geek in high school because i was interested in the history of like mathematical and musical geniuses and then uh so then i just felt like inferior for most of my life trying to live up to these things and uh but i got a lot of skills along the way yeah i just go with the be better than i was yesterday because you know i'd read all these books of all these people who i wanted to become or were inspired by and it just seemed impossibly far away at the same time the progress that i make you know, over the course of a year or two seems to be pretty great. And so I've kind of, I'm a, I'm 33, but I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm relaxing a little bit with as long as I live my life with these like really solid principles, do good work and wake up every day and just move the ball forward that I'll, that I'll be very pleased with where I end up. Yeah. I think that's really sound. Yeah. I mean, Exactly. I mean, whereas in high school, I was like, I want to be the best classical guitarist in the world. I want to like contribute <laughs> yep. to like modern mathematics and i was just like a complete overly romantic morose person at that you know time as i've gotten older i don't know it's like okay so i'm not the best classical guitarist in the world i'm not like a total mathematical genius i'm probably not the best computer programmer or the best neuroscientist whatever but but like i'm really good at all of these things you know that's where as a, as a cto i've really enjoyed this position because for lack of a better term, I kind of call it synthetic reasoning. I think that between all the work I've done in like mathematics and computer science and neuroscience, I studied philosophy as well. You know, I, I'm pretty good at putting things together. You know, I've really enjoyed, like one of the reasons I also kind of got into the business was interested in it was the people aspect of it. I was really enjoying as I was going from undergrad to grad school to postdoc you start having more people beneath you who you're expected to mentor. And I really enjoy mentorship. I enjoyed it when I was studying classical music. I enjoyed it with my teachers. And as a CTO, I, I really enjoy it as well. I've enjoyed the experience of thinking about, okay, how do we scale our company to build the different technologies from, we, you know, we have the embedded device, the AR device on the helmet, which is more my specialized domain of real-time programming and, and visual experience. But then we have these cloud-native services and, and figuring out, you know, okay, I don't know all this stuff, but I can learn it pretty quickly. And I got to manage these people and having this tablet application. You know, that experience of working with 
and bringing in talented engineers, evaluating talent, building in systems to check people's progress, creating this so people don't hate each other along the way. I really enjoy that. And I think all of these endeavors where I've tried to be like the best at things and ended up you know, second best have actually turned out to be like pretty good. When you, if you're, if you're like second best in enough things, you're pretty good at whatever that is. <laughs> have you um, surrounded yourself with a lot of other smart CTOs? I've tried to as much as I can. You know, I definitely LinkedIn's been a fun area there, uh, where I've met people. Also, the uh, last scientific work I did was at NYU, and they have a pretty good center for entrepreneurship here at NYU. Some of the alumni that I have from my old days at Berkeley have gone on to do careers, and that's really fun. Actually, a couple of my uh, grad school colleagues have left academia to do ventures, and we all kind of chat, and that's really cool. And then also, uh, like the AWS GovStat, uh, GovTech Start program has been fun because one of the things I have is like a co-founders or like a founders roundtable where we sit down. And I've actually learned a lot about like, because there's some people who have done that worked in the public space before, and it's really nice to kind of learn some of that niche, you know, particular information that'll hopefully help you succeed. Yeah, it's incredibly important. I didn't get into it until I don't know the past year or so, and I met this guy at Team. Well, I knew him, but I re re met him. hadn't hung out with him in a while, and we started talking. And he has a company that basically does these seven groups. You know, they get seven CTOs together and they have these groups, uh, but they're more expensive. They're more like an executive level thing. And he said, Hey, we're doing like a lower price, like $150 a month type deal. And I, and I know you have the podcast and the listeners. And so we ended up doing this joint venture together called elevate. Mm. And man, I'll tell you what, like after getting these people, it's a, it's like a weekly call. Right. And it's a slack. And after getting together and, getting to have community and being around these people, I wish I would have done it like 10 years ago. It's, yeah, it's just, and so all these other people I'm talking to now, cause I do all these interviews, right. They're like, yeah, of course, dude. Yeah. You, <laughs> you gotta be in a group. And yeah. I, I'm like, oh man, I wish I would have learned that a long time ago. Yeah. I definitely want to build mine out more. I mean, that was one of the appeals of, of this forum is, uh, is the opportunity to kind of learn from and I've enjoyed listening to the episodes, you know, from the range of companies. I like that you got everybody from like people like GitHub down to more like niche technology firms and, you know, myself included. And uh, to get the range of experiences is really important. And, uh, and it's, you know, I think we're, we're in such the golden age of technology right now. It's so much fun to be in tech but in the CTO and the in the technology department of a technology company obviously plays such a huge role, but there's like all these other factors around. And, you know, I, I've enjoyed the experience and would like to learn more from people like about the peculiar kind of, you know, the challenges that you hit as a, as a CTO, right? Like engineering versus product and like, where do you put your foot down and don't, and you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's tricky to, you know, especially when like in our case, we're making a hardware product and we got a lot of cooks in the kitchen trying to figure out how to make it work. And some of them know physics and some of them don't, you know what I mean? And uh, that can, you know, and if you're not right, if you don't really kind of make sure you're true on your decisions in terms of technical soundness, you know, it costs a hundred thousand dollars to move a button, you know what I mean? Yeah. On hardware. You know, and it's, you know, learning strategies to kind of uh, 
effectively communicate that sometimes technology constraints aren't nice to haves is is one thing that's really tricky as a CTO, I think. You know, it's what CTOs do for companies, particularly early stages, which I'm most familiar with. It's it's very challenging. You know, I, I know one of the things that I have wrestled with as much as I do enjoy chatting with people and communicating about what we do. And I think there's a healthy space for debate. I'm still the lead. We're a small enough company. I'm still the lead engineer. Right. And so I think, and I've talked to some CTOs and a common refrain I hear is at a certain point, we need a quiet room and big blocks of time to work on stuff. Right. And that workflow is actually very different from a lot of the partners you'll have in your company. Right. The biggest contrast being, you know, my, my CEO, Sam, uh, you know, his job is much more multitask. I'm on this call with this person. I'm responding to this email here. You know, I'm checking in on, you know, this pitch deck, et cetera. And I'll have days like that. But again, like when I'm working on this contract, working on making our mapping and, and tracking system very robust, I'll put in like, you know, I'm at the, the whiteboard mapping things out and putting in 10 hour days. And so where that comes in is really challenging sometimes is when, you know, when we have a, a disagreement about something, and we got to figure out. And I'm trying to have as quick of a conversation as possible because I have work to do. And he's like down to hang out and chat it at length because that's what he does for a living. You know what I mean? And uh, which is not a dig on him. It's just a different person. I think it's important to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I get it. It's communication differences. Every CTO right now is like completely understanding whether they've even have been individual contributors, engineers, and have experienced that and then have since left that position and they're all they are kind of full-time social slash you know growth type level because you have to adapt to your business and you'll get there too. Or if they're still in that position like you're in right now where you're trying to balance the two as you progress out of it and the company grows, it's not easy, man. It's difficult. And the only thing we can do as people is get together and talk about it because, man, it feels good to be yeah. around other people who are experiencing yeah. what you're experiencing and, and you know, they'll like sharing tricks or tips or whatever it may be. But I know the spot you're in right now and because I've had several business partners and I was the tech person building the product. And it, it's just tough, man. There's no way around it. You just have to, eventually you'll find some really great people that you can trust to hand these things off to. But then, you know, that's dependent on when you raise money or when revenue comes in. So you, you have right. to just play that role until the revenue comes in and then, you know, figure out how to get really great people on your team that can own it so that you can uh, do whatever you want to do. Or some people even, uh, you, this is actually one of the most common questions that I get when I do like public talks in front of audiences. It's like, what's the CTO's role? <laughs> really? Right? Or yeah, yeah. Like what, what should they be doing? And this, this one guy in the Elevate community made this um, great thing called a CTO maturity model that shows where your focus could be throughout different stages of growth in the company. It was really fascinating. I thought I need to partner with that guy to write my next book because I want to use that content. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know kind of what you, you know, some of my observations have been, well, first of all, you know, as much as I was speaking a little bit to some of the challenges of the position that I am in, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, keeps me level-headed about it is I feel at a very privileged position in the world and in my life to be, these are very intriguing challenges and problems, right? Like my job, I, I, you know, one of the things I, and I admonish people, I like to think of 
myself as an ethical technologist, I like to promote this idea to people about, you know, hey, sometimes the the hard work, the time, maybe in terms of pay, the sacrifice is worth it. Because like I get up every morning, I know what I'm doing. And I don't really question that. Right. And as much as, you know, because I believe in what Quake Technologies is building towards both now and into the future. And these challenges with the other members of my team, it's, it's, it's structural. I don't think it's necessarily about them. It's just the nature of trying to bring together this interdisciplinary group. You know, in contrast, you know, one of the things I like about an entrepreneurial venture that I think uh, academia could benefit from is like anybody who's in academia who knows, you, you know, you go from postdoc, then you maybe get your own lab. The joke is that you go from being a top-rate scientist to being a totally mediocre manager, right? Because once you have your own lab, it really is a small business. You are a startup where the university and a couple federal agencies are your investors in determining your value. The problem is you don't have a CEO and CTO. You have one person that is both, right? And so I'm grateful for my CEO as much as we might have challenges in figuring out how to communicate, I'm not having to make all those phone calls and emails as much and I can keep focused on the work. And I think to your point about what the CTO's role is, and I've been learning about this a lot myself, when I was managing, you know, the embedded tech on the device, the AR, which I was, I've written all the source code on that. That's that's my job. And then for the uh, the cloud portion of it, I wrote all the code for the endpoint, working with the AWS services, working closely with the cloud engineer. The tablet, the IW, the iOS stuff, I didn't even really know Swift at all, right? And I was like, okay, I'm going to use Jira. I'm going to manage these through tickets. But I learned along the way, you know, the art, it seems, of a CTO is because ultimately, I think a CTO, I'm responsible for all the technology working right and, and fixing problems right so if if somebody's working on and i learned this like the tablet and, and something doesn't work and then i'm like oh i don't really know swift i don't really know how to fix them or to get people to fix it that's I, i'm not doing my job right so figuring out how to scale while still remaining enough knowledge or having people i trust to delegate that it seems like that's a huge huge part of it and i'm still at the stage where like I learned Swift a little bit, right? So I can sit down with my iOS engineers. Like I know programming and logic well enough to once I learn the syntax a bit, I can be like, okay, now walk me through the code. Where's this problem? You know, have those touch points. But yeah, because I think one of the lessons I learned from a, a gentleman who worked at a, a company that we did a contract with is he said, uh, responsibility without authority is blame, right? You don't want to be in a situation where the people below you are responsible for things, but they don't have the authority to fix them. So they just get blamed. And then you also don't want to be in a situation where, you know, you don't have like the, you have the responsibility, but you don't even have the authority of knowledge about it. Right. You just don't want to be in a position where you're going, Oh, this thing doesn't work, but I don't know why it's like, you know, it's, it's not good enough if you're the CTO, I think. It's a tough thing. It's a tough balance. And the beautiful part about this is, there's no book, there's no answer. There's there's just, you have to be in it and experience it and grow through it. It's just a tough thing. You just have to talk it out, talk the details out with, with great people and handle each situation as it comes. Because I always like to like dig under the question. I'm like, well, why are you asking me what the CTO's responsibilities are? If you have the title of CTO, what do you do? And it's always like something 
where there's like a disagreement underlying there. So they're looking for some third party thing that they can point to. Or here's the responsibilities or there's just confusion. Like maybe they got promoted and they're uncertain about what they should be doing or should be spending their time on. But, but you nailed it. The CTO is a, is a chief technology officer. They're on the, the team, right? The, the executive leadership team for the company and the company dictates the responsibilities. That's like when people talk to me about team structure, like, well, what's right? Do we do two pizza teams? Do we do Spotify tribes? Like, what do we, what's your business model? Like, yeah. because your customers and your business model are going to have a, the influence, the team structure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, the, I think the responsibility bit and is, uh, is very, very important because I find that if you don't have clear responsibilities you end up in a situation where like the company is oh everyone makes mistakes but nobody specifically is ever really admitting mistakes and then you just get if you can't learn from your mistakes you can't move forward and then also you know i find that giving responsibility at the right level to people below me really empowers them people want to own something you know yes. they want to feel empowered to work on something and to uh if they have to make mistakes but create a context where you know i have like a review and i kind of adopted this a little bit from mentorship in academia where i have regular weekly meetings with the people immediately below me and we just go to the whiteboard we do demos and we go to the code if something doesn't work we're like well you know i don't go oh that's too bad it doesn't work here's a high level description of how you might fix it, go and do it. You know, if you have an hour of my time, I'll spend 15 minutes with you. Like, let's actually bang this thing up a little bit. Right. And, and it creates a, I, I think a, a sense that my people that I work with, that I value their work. And then also a little bit like I'm watching, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a little bit of that uh, responsibility. And then, and then I think also really, importantly i find this is hard to do with cto is like learning to admit when i don't know something you know because like as cto i'm like supposed to know everything right and so it can make it hard to be like i don't actually know that you know um i've gotten better at that and you know that's where you have confidence in your ability to learn quickly that's it that's one thing your responsibility as cto is to like learn really fast yeah and and you're never going to know everything. I think most people are cool with that. I think there, I don't know the better way to say it, but it would be something along the lines of, like, I don't know the answer to everything, but I know how to get the answer. Yeah. Right. Like I don't know the solution, but I know the problem solving scientific method of how we're going to arrive at this result. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that uh, when I look back upon my education uh, and going through academia, one of the skills that, I acquired. I'm so grateful for the the mentors and the, the disciplinaries who you know taught me. It was just learn quickly. You know, like sit if you know sit down and read a book if you don't know something. You know, and uh, and figure out how to gain knowledge quickly. That's why I donate to Wikipedia every time they ask. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, we have a hard stop in five minutes, so I just got a couple questions uh, for you that are actually from the community, from the Elevate community. Oh, and cool. so let's see, because you, and we kind of tailored them to you because you happen to have a really strong understanding of IP because of all the stuff you're building over there. And uh, I was curious, okay, here's a hypothetical situation. If you're hiring someone, you have this fantastic candidate, you really like them a lot, but as part of their portfolio, 
they sent over designs that are IP of their current employer and they ask you to delete them after you review them. Is that like an instant disqualification? Oh yeah. They're not supposed to do that. That's, I know. you know, I mean, um, that, yeah, I think so because I think character matters a lot and that gesture would show two bad things. One, it would show that the person is insecure in their own abilities, which then led them to make an unethical move to try to bolster their, uh, uh, how they look. Yeah. That, that would not be okay with me. Yeah. It's a tough one to pick apart. My, my producer, he said, he goes, would you have looked at it? And I go, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if I would have, if I did look at it, I would have realized an hour later that I should have not have done that. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I if they if told, hey, if they sent it to you, yeah. they sent it to you, and you, you didn't know what it was, then what are you going to do if it's a part of their portfolio? But if they kind of like, hey, you got to delete this after you show, you know, show it to me. I don't know, man. It's like I get burnt on this sometimes because I, I, I tend to play fair more than other people. But you know, yeah, that's just how I would do it, probably. I agree. I fully agree with that. You know, I love, that's why I love asking these questions because I, the way you articulated your perspective of the character flaw issue that, you know, in this question, it said like three times, even if the candidate is top notch and I can even read it in the question, they, they know they shouldn't, but they're trying to justify it because they're like a top notch. But what you did is you came in and brought this perspective that they aren't a top notch candidate because they have these character flaws. So I like that. Uh, what KPI are you, you're an early stage company, uh, building your, and taking your first product to market. What KPI are you measured on as a CTO? Well, at the early stage, if we assume that the product market fits been kind of made, the business people have done their side, early stage, you just got to deliver. You have to make the thing work. And then the reality is early stage, there's going to be bugs. And you need to communicate with your team how you're going to do, because those early demos are super important, right? If you're trying to show stuff off. So then you got to make it work and whatever workarounds you need, you can work with the rest of your team to do a little bit of the Barnum and Bailey, right? You got to do the circus a little bit. Early stage, it's deliver and be tight with your team to work around the, the current challenges of the technology. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.